Hello and welcome to the Dash Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Gamage, and this episode is sponsored by the Gamage Consulting Group. We help middle school principals support student behavior. It's a five-step process that starts with getting the right people on your campus involved to set the expectations in the way that we're going to measure success. By the end of the 30-day process, you will have a process for implementing consistent classroom support. To learn more about the services that Gamers Consulting Group offers, visit TreyGamers.com shop and schedule your time to have a conversation. But joining me today, I have Mr. Brandon Morrison, who is an educator, change agent, and equity advocate. Now, Brandon, you're a fifth grade teacher in Guilford County, and you've got some aspirations to affect policy in education. I have seen these um, this interest online with some of the new teacher bills and, and uh, want for higher pay and equality and teacher voice. Can you talk to me about why um, being a change agent for teachers is so important to you? Uh, yes. Um, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, but with that, I wanted to um, say that it's it's never a separation between me advocating for teachers and uh, teachers' voice and policy and me advocating for my students. Um, mm -hmm. There's never been a teacher that I've ever met who has ever uh, had a conversation with me about policy and it didn't go back to students in some way. Um, so I know me being in North Carolina uh, from last year's uh, rally in Raleigh to this uh, coming rally in the next week or so, I'm on May 1st. Um, a lot of it always just focused to teachers and we're getting out of school and we're shutting down our counties and things like that. Um, and it's like, well, why are the teachers doing this when you're supposed to be teaching the kids? But in turn, we're advocating not only for better working conditions for us, but an overall better education uh, for our students that we care so much about and we put so much energy mm. into. Yeah. Um, so so what, are, what are some of the top um, that's interesting. That, that's just really interesting. I'm a, so I'm a city council member myself in the city of Hartsville. So um, understanding disparity in the lack of resources for, for underserved populations, whether we're talking about black people, Latino people, um, folks that are in poverty, you know, that it, it really does make a difference. And I can truly see that tie between the student and the teacher. My uh, initial desire, my initial passion out of college was to be a professional speaker, and I wanted to speak to students. But as I kept going, I realized to have a deeper impact, similar to what you're saying here, it would make more sense to work with the teachers and the students, because the if we can develop teacher, they can develop the student and go on, so on and so forth. You've got that trickle-down effect there. Um, what are some of the priorities in um, your fight for better work environments, and, and what, what are those top priorities, and, and how do you explain that to your students? Uh, some, some top priorities that I think um, personally and from some of my colleagues that I've had discussions with, one of them is um, understanding class size. Uh, in North Carolina, we have had different policies that affected class size. Some of them uh, removed class size limits and then they returned them. And uh, right now we're in a situation, me being in elementary school, where the class size cap ends at around uh, second grade. So it's a kindergarten through second grade um, class cap. And so once it reaches a certain amount, teachers... Um, 
won't receive any more students, the school will just be able to hire a new teacher to take on that next group. Uh, but in fifth grade, uh, there is no class gap. And I'm fortunate right now to only have a class of about 25. I teach two classes because we departmentalize. Um, but a class of 25 is manageable for me. But if you think about this, kids only get larger. Uh, and so being in a high school with 40 children in a classroom, one, you're going to have a large lack of space. But two, you're also going to be stretched thin when you're really trying to build those relationships as well as being able to um, really be able to focus on the needs of the individual students. Uh, and so with that, I try to explain to my kids um, even from last year with the rally that we went to and this year because they're going to be out of school. And, you know, a lot of them like, oh, you know, Mr. Morrison's going to Raleigh. And so we get out of school, but we also want them to understand that this is for you. And, you know, if your parents want to come, if you want to come and advocate for yourself, then you you definitely have the right to do that. But also realize that this is for you, your younger sister, uh, and for the futures of all the students in North Carolina. Um, and so it, it just comes to, luckily for me, I teach 10 and 11 year olds so they can start to understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but just being real with them and, and exposing them to uh, the politics that affect them on a day-to-day -day basis that they may not be aware of. Mm. So th that's, I think this is amazing, um, really and truly. What's been the response from your teachers when you have that conversation with your students, how does it go? And how are your principals, your, your district administrators, your parents, you know, how are they responding to um, your advocacy? Overall, uh, from a parent perspective, the parents um, have been nothing but supportive. Uh, we understand as educators that uh, when you have to take a day or when you have to find childcare on a typical school day, it can be difficult, but I think the parents have been open and understanding. Um, even some of my parents, they, they tell me, you know, like, I know my kid can be a handful, uh, but thank you so much for trying your best and advocating and pouring so much of yourself into them. And so I think they understand that with uh, administrators and with district leaders, a lot of times their hands kind of feel tied because they don't want to be uh, looked at as swaying one side or the other politically. Uh, but uh, behind closed doors, there have been several administrators uh, throughout the county and uh, district leaders who stand behind us and tell us we can't do that based on the position we're in, but you can. And I think that's empowering to the teachers because a lot of times we're looked at as the bottom of the totem pole when in turn we create the most change. Um, and then re-emphasizing um, re that to our students and letting them know um, what it's like to really stand up and advocate for yourself is a, is a soft skill that may not be put into the curriculum, but it's, it's one that they pick up on and they ask questions and they respond and they really seek to understand it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do, do your, um, you think your students are, are getting a grasp of what's going on? I think it's a, it's a mix. Some students are very interested in it, but I think that has a lot to do with um, exposure outside of the classroom. Yeah. Um, what they're, what they are, uh, what they discuss at home, what they hear their parents discussing and things like that. Um, but I think all of them have a, a small interest in what it's like to, uh, to be an adult and to really be, I guess, going against the grain when it comes to creating mm. change. 
Mm. So, you know, you've seen um, over the past, I guess, five to 10 years, and really we can go back down as, as far as we want to go in terms of um, reasons that people will march or rally. You know, you, you have um, police violence amongst young black students or young black men, I should say, um, and women. You've got the, uh, the, the, the rallies and the wave of equity for gender and, and sexuality, you know, equal opportunity there. You've had um, marches for racism with, with Donald Trump and some other things going on. Is it new for teachers to be protesting or is this something that's been going on for a long time? I wouldn't necessarily say it's new, but I think with um, the the outlets that we have in the avenues, such as social media, such as more media coverage in general, uh, I think it's it's becoming more widespread and more um, visible, uh, especially with uh, the wave of new teachers. Uh, I've only been out of high school for less than 10 years. So I graduated in 2010. Um, and so I came into college um, and I came into the workforce at a very, I think, prominent time where everything can be found on Google. Everything could be seen in this article, that article on YouTube and things like that. And so I think there's been so much exposure to uh, people in my generation that we see that there's a need for change, but there's also been also this wave of empowerment where they've told us that we don't just have to sit still and allow the status quo to be the status quo and allow things to be what they are. Kesara Sarai is gone. It's not what it will be, will be what we want it to be. And so I think we've been, um, we've been more focused on creating that change as in maybe in past generations, it was more of just survival. Um, but I also want to, commend and say that I definitely uh, pay homage to uh, those who came before me as a black male who has gone to a historically black college um, like North Carolina A&T State University here in North Carolina. Um, I was exposed to the history of the people who made it, who made a way for me to be able to march. Um, mm -hmm not necessarily for civil rights this time, um, mm -hmm. but for the rights of children to have a fair education. Yeah, yeah, that, cause, and that, that's the real thing. You know, I think um, the most impressive part about being an educator is the heart that you have to have for children because they, they are the next generation that once they get out of school, they're, they're taking care of us and, and all those good things, but also kids don't have a choice. You know, they, right. they, didn't, they didn't choose who their parents were. They didn't choose what, what neighborhood they were born in or what school they're going to. They didn't choose who their teacher was going to be. They just got to show up and do what they're told. And so that's, that's a tough position to be in as a child, though they don't know any better. You know, but you want, you want to be able to put yourself in the best position for your uh, students to be able to go and, and live their dreams at the end of the day. And I think that's always been my dream uh, as even a young child, I always wanted to help people and I always wanted to share my knowledge and I always wanted to have some type of impact no matter how small it was in the world. And coming from a place of poverty, um, coming from, I guess, being what I would say would be um, unaware or oblivious to the, the systemic things that were going to become barriers to me later on in life, um, I think 
now that I realize that there are kids growing up like that, especially I'm a strong advocate for young black males, especially. Um, and so knowing things now, I can understand what it's like to want to set them up to be as successful as they can by uh, fighting for the rights now so that they don't have to fight later. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. You, well, you know, and I, I was, I had another podcast interview. I'm going to find that um, episode number in a second. But I was talking to a man named Lloyd Knight, and he's a principal up in the Midwest. Um, that's episode 84. And he talks about how only 2% of educators are black males. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for you to be a black male educator knowing um, the lack of representation that we see in the classroom for people that look like you and me? I think it's a heightened sense of responsibility. Uh, I've had conversations with some of my young black males when, um, you know, things might have gone a little bit wrong. You know, they might have had some behavior infractions and things like that. But I like to have real talk conversations with them. Um, and, you know, I know, sadly, that I may be the only black male in a classroom that they will ever see. Mm. Um, and so I take it as a responsibility to try to plant these little seeds of knowledge that one day may sprout. They may not listen to me now, you know, but um, one day may sprout and they'll come to that realization. And so I feel like that's my responsibility beyond math, science, reading, you know, any of those things. I feel like I'm a representation of what um, they could be, not necessarily my career, but they could be... Uh, Mm -hmm. um, someone who has compassion. They can be someone who wants to help their fellow man. And those things that sometimes we're portrayed as um, in the media is not the only path. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I take heartfelt responsibility for um, my black students, especially my young black males, because I know that underrepresentation has always been a detriment to so many of them. Mm -hmm. And I refuse to let that just continue without me putting up some type of fight. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. I think, you know, just as you're saying, I think, I believe I had one black art teacher in my K-12 education. I think there was only one teacher that I had that was black. Um, and even going up through college, I, there may have been one more. I had a, I had a Portuguese Brazilian music teacher in college, but I think there was one black art teacher and one Brazilian um, music teacher, and everybody else that that I can remember in my head um, was not black. They were they were white male or or female. So. Tell me, Brandon, when you're in the classroom, and, and my first position as a consultant was as an emotional coach for teachers, because mm -hmm. teachers have baggage too. And especially, you know, you're, you're an equity advocate, and we'll get into equity more as well. But as you're going into the classroom, you know, just like these kids have issues at home, sometimes I have problems at home. Some, sometimes I'm not ready to come into work. And there's, there's a baggage there's a bias, there are blind spots that a teacher can have and bring into that classroom. What, what do you think about that, that baggage bias and blind spots that you may have in the classroom? And how can teachers become more aware of, of those uh, deficits and not put them on your students? Um, as a teacher who has a lot of baggage, I can admit that. Um, I think 
I have to take a step back and reflect to myself even before I step outside my door to get in my car to go to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to tell myself that no matter what's going on with me, that's not my students' responsibilities. Mm-hmm. That um, the students are my responsibilities. And so when I step foot in my classroom, I am there to educate them academically, um, emotionally. Uh, I'm there to be that beacon of knowledge and hope um, and strength to them because they're coming to me with a whole lot of baggage too, and they don't know how to deal with it, you know? So um, I think it's, it's sometimes may seem unfair, but I think it's uh, a part of the job when we have to come in um, and we have a purpose that's much greater than any of the baggage that we have. Mm. Uh, And so with that, I, I've sought, professional help with some of uh, quote-unquote baggage. I've also built strong relationships with my grade-level team and other colleagues in my uh, school. Uh, But with that, I think as an educator, again, our purpose is so much greater that we we step in there raring to go. Um, And though it can be exhausting at the end of the day, we're pushing every day for the students. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Um, how, how about so, you know, we, we know there are those times when you, you may have, you know, if I say how many, well, just trying to think about the right way to put that, you know, students get sent to the office. And mm-hmm. if I were to go to any classroom or, or talk to a group of teachers and ask, you know, which students are getting sent out of class, a, a lot of times it's only going to be the same three to five students, you know, maybe more, maybe less, and and not even putting those students in the box. But um, what strategies are you able to use in the classroom for classroom management, you know, keeping your kids in class instead of sending them to the office for referrals? And what kind of support do you receive from your principals and your support team in classroom management? I think one of the uh, greatest things for me as a teacher is when my administrators empower me to make the change in my students. Um, And I think I've taken that to heart over these past five years. Uh, It may sound cliche, but uh, it's all about relationships. And I think um, once you set your expectations and you work with those students to combine with what they expect, which is not always taken into consideration, but they are humans who can think, you know. Um, But with that, I think a lot of times we can handle situations without sending them to the office. Uh, Just speaking with my administrators, when I first came into the classroom, I had no idea how much they have to deal with that's not even student related. Mm-hmm. every single day. And so I made it my mission and my grade level made it our mission that we're not going to keep sending kids to the office mm-hmm. when one, they're missing um, class time. Two, we're kind of just putting them off on someone else. Uh, and our administrators at our school are great about working to build relationships. But at the end of the day, those students are in my classroom more than they're going to see them. Yeah. And so I should be the main person who's handling these situations because I should be the one besides their parents who, or, you know, their family who has tapped into them and know more about them. And so when it comes to my classroom, 
especially this year, I have some, a good amount of behavior issues. But um, what I will say is that my kids are so responsive when I ask them, can I see them outside and we have a conversation? Mm-hmm. Or even if maybe I have to deal out a consequence because, you know, I'd let them know I'm the same Mr. Morrison from August until June. It can be rough or it can be smooth, but know that what you do is going to, you know, determine what comes next. Yeah. And so with that, you know, I'll have conversations with them and I'll say, now, look, now, you know me and I know you. <laughs> Let's see you how this situation played out and why it might have not been the best idea for you to do what you did. Hmm. And they could admit that they did something wrong, but you also have to let them know that you did something wrong in this moment, but that doesn't determine the rest of the day. That doesn't determine the rest of the week or the school year in general. You know, you come in with a clean slate. I believe in you. And I always tell them at the end, I believe in you. I love you. And in most cases, you're going to come and give me a hug because, you know, I want to reinforce that I do this because I care. Right. Right. Um, And, you know, that's, that's proven to be um, more beneficial than just saying, okay, you're acting up and now you got to go because at the end of the day, I'm basically running away from my problem and I'm removing them from a situation where I could have a greater impact. Mm. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's, as you were saying that I, it made me think of an analogy that I have not used before. So if it's a bad one, just let me know. I, it, it, it's similar to, you know, sending a student out of your classroom is like when, um, you know, there's joint custody with parents and mom says, your dad's going to deal with that discipline behavior. So every time dad sees the child, he's got a discipline or mm-hmm. mom sees the child, he's got a discipline behavior that he didn't even witness. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, when, when you, as a teacher, if you're sending a child out of your classroom, you're also t- sending your authority out of the classroom because I'm, I'm, I'm losing that. I'm not consecrating that behavior. I'm not able to handle it. So I send that out. Does that, does that resonate? Does that make sense or sound um, accurate to you? No, that definitely sounds accurate. Uh, and I can relate that back to my first year of teaching because um, I had to learn that, of course, you know, teach it, teachers are lifelong learners, especially when it comes to behavior management, because every child's different every single year. Um, but with that, uh, I had to learn that, that even though uh, I might have had to take a little bit of instructional time to handle this issue. It was so much more effective than me just telling them, okay, you have to go. Right. Um, And I think the other students um, developed a greater respect for that as well. And you could start to see your, um, I could start to see my uh, other students start to regulate themselves, which is my goal every school year is to be able to teach my students how to self-regulate, how to think before they act. Um, and I could start seeing that like some, a, a student may act out. And before I have to say anything, another one of my students may say, like, come on, dude, like, really right now? And now and that's super effective because now your peers are telling you that that's not OK, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so so with that, I definitely agree that removing, you know, the child from the classroom without you even trying um, takes away your authority. But it also shows them that, uh, you know. They got, I got under their skin and now I don't have to learn anything. Oh, no, 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 no. You're going to stay in my class. <laughs> and we're going to learn. You might not be able to do this group work anymore. It might be independent, but you're still going to learn. Yeah. 
Yeah, and sometimes that's what they want is is to get set out of class. You know, if, if there's a subject that they're not doing so well in. Um, so so tell me, Brandon, how how much of classroom management is relationship, and how much of it is the intervention in pedagogy? I think it's a healthy mix, but I think it's um, I think it's very cyclical. Um, by that I mean you start to build those relationships at the beginning while also establishing your expectations, but it needs to be science nerd talk, but it needs to be like a semi-solid. Have you ever made like the, um, I think they call it oobleck. It's like a solid, and then when you, when you hit it, it's a solid, but if you let your hand slowly sink into it, it's more liquid-like. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully your listeners will. Um, but with that, uh, that's kind of how I think classroom management with the relationships and things like that are. You start off um, with your solid foundation, but I think as you go through, you end up starting to say, okay, well, this won't work for this student. And that comes from your relationships and your knowledge about learning who that student is mm. um, instead of just, you know, blanketing them all into all students should follow this. All students, you know, should behave this way. And these are the consequences for everyone. Because I have some students I can look at and, you know, I gave them the definition at the beginning of the year. I say there are two things that we need to work on. I said, that's dumb and stupid. And at first they take a gasp. They're like, <laughs> he's using dumb and stupid. But I tell them, I said, dumb is when you do not know. I said, so if you do something dumb, I'm going to tell you that it was dumb, but you didn't know. So I said, that's a quick forgiveness. We're going to keep going. I said, now, stupid, on the other hand, I said, stupid means you knew and you did it anyway. Ooh. <laughs> and I said, so when I call you out on something stupid, I said, do not be surprised when you're immediately punished because you knew better, did you not? And, you know, they can, they can agree with that. But there are some kids that I can say that was really dumb. Other kids I have to, you know, <laughs> I have to change the, my, my right. speech toward them, but get to the same uh, situation. And that all comes from relationships. And so I think it's a constant uh, flow back and forth of establishing a relationship. Now I'm altering my classroom management for that student. Okay. And then, but my expectations have never changed. It's just mm -hmm. the way that I approach consequences uh, and the way that I, uh, you know, approach that student, uh, however he or she best response to me um and our relationship that's good right there that's real good right there i'm about to do some googling on oobleck um, <laughs> i like the dumb and stupid part too and i think that last piece that you just said too is adapting the management style for the relationship but not changing the expectation that's huge because once you alter the standard or lower the standard raise the standard the other kids in that class they don't like being treated unfairly if you get a piece of candy i want that piece of candy too mm -hmm. so you you cannot change that expectation you got to maintain that standard um that, that's phenomenal um so so tell me brandon do, is there a behavior protocol or system that you guys use i know pbis mtss um, capturing kids hearts is there is there any strategies that you guys are using that are school-wide um, at my old school uh, my first two years I taught uh, actually in Vance County North Carolina um, so it's more of a northern county um, and there we were a PBIS school um, at my school currently here in Guilford County 
We don't have one um, in our school particularly. Um, we do have, I guess you can call it more so of an honor code. It's called go for the gold because we're pirates. Um, and that stands for give and earn respect, own your own behavior, listen and follow directions and do your very best. Um, and so with that, that's more of the blanket, but we go through and explain what that looks like in the hallway. What does that look like in the classroom? What does that look like cafeteria recess? You know, those things. And we do have uh, rewards for that. We call them the pirate store. So kids get uh, little pirate cash, uh, look like little dollars with our school pirate on it. Um, and they can go and purchase prizes and things, but they get those for positive behavior. Um, and some of us in the higher grades, we like to make deductions. So, you know, <laughs> you know, there's there's an infraction. Here we go. Uh, let me get let me get five pirate cash, you know. <laughs> um, and so with that, we don't have a set. But I think what we work together to do um, is we work together to develop expectations for our students that are are universal. So when you go to music, when you go to art, when you go into the cafeteria, if there's a substitute teacher, um, any of those things, the expectations are always the same regardless, Um, even though we may not have a a set structure that uh, is given, you know, like it's not PBIS or those other ones. Okay. Yeah. And well, and that's really, you know, there's, everybody's got a philosophy in, in a way that you, um, something that you work with. So I, I'm not a, I, I use all of them or I've seen all of the ones that I'm interested in, but it's, it's really just about being consistent with those and having that consistent consequence reward expectation. Those are, those are to me, the three um, important pieces, consequences, rewards, expectations, um, and that that's what builds your structure, basically. The last couple of pieces I want to get into, Brandon, um, <clears> they <throat> might tie in together. You mentioned you're finishing up a fellowship. Can you talk to me about that fellowship that you're doing? Yes. Um, Hope Street Group uh, is a nonpartisan um, organization, and it's a nonprofit. Um, I believe it started in D.C., but they've had fellowship locations in North Carolina, Hawaii, some states in the Midwest, um, and things of that sort. Um, So they're in several different states with the fellowship. Um, And basically, it pulls together groups of teachers uh, every one to two years um, as a cohort, and it goes through different um, professional developments um, for teachers to be able to better insert themselves into policy decisions while still in the classroom. So you don't have to step out of the classroom. Um, You don't have to go into administration. You don't have to Mm -hmm. become a politician to do it. Um, And so when I joined the fellowship um, for the past couple of years, you know, I had a colleague in Guilford County with me, but they brought teachers from uh, the mountains to the coast here in North Carolina. And we met several different times in different locations where we learned how to conduct focus groups. We met with um, the school superintendent, uh, Dr. Petrie at uh, our North Carolina Department of Public Instruction. Um, We talked to business makers. Um, We went to conferences and things like that, but all of it focused on really being able to meet, um, converse, and develop relationships with these these game changers and really be able to use our voice through either writing or through conversation to really um, have a greater impact on policy in our state. Mm, and that's a two-year fellowship? Uh, yes. Unfortunately, um, 
because it's a nonprofit um, and the the uh, I guess the the funding has become lower over the years. Gotcha. Um, North Carolina won't be having a fellowship. Uh, for the next few years, but they do have it in other states still. Um, and we're still very much apart because we've built relationships with other fellows and policymakers. So it's sort of like the fellowship continues, even though we're not necessarily meeting um, structurally, I guess. Right, right. Um, but it, it's definitely been so rewarding, and I've definitely met people um, in I met legislators, I met, um, you know, business leaders and things like that that I'm still in contact with because um, I was trained to be able to reach out to them and to really mm. have those important conversations. Mm. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That sounds like a great opportunity to to connect with people that have um, similar minds. I, I hadn't heard about that before. I haven't heard about, you know, just the interest in policy from um, an educator perspective. I've, I've thought about, um, you know, different school board type of things and stuff like that. Um, but that's powerful that you're working on that from that gra- grassroots perspective. Um, and, and I think it does kind of tie into this last piece that I wanted to get into with you. And, and that's just the conversation about equity advocacy. What does equity mean to you and how do you practice that in your classroom and at your school? Uh, to me, when I think about equity, the first thing um, that comes to mind is realizing that the past can't change, but the future can. Hmm. Um, and I think uh, growing up as a young black male, um, I think I've just seen and experienced so much um, either directly to me or indirectly, just in my observations of the world, um, that, you know, I realized that there is so much inequity, so much unfairness, um, to me for no reason other than the fact that one group wants to be on top of the other. Yeah. Um, And for me as an educator, I realized that some kids growing up are still experiencing those same situations and they're just unaware. Like when I was 10 years old, like my fifth graders now, I didn't understand racism. I didn't understand uh, the systemic issues that came from uh, law enforcement, uh, the pipeline to prison. I didn't understand any of that. I just knew that there were people that I knew that were in jail that looked like me. I knew that there were people doing illegal things and I knew that, you know, I wasn't the most, you know, uh, wealthy, but I knew people that didn't look like me who were, and I went to school with them and, you know, they got to go on vacations while I just went to grandma's house. Love my grandma, God rest her soul. So I don't, I don't regret that, but you know, there were so many different opportunities, opportunities and access that I couldn't receive simply because of what I was born into. And as you said earlier, children don't choose their parents. They don't, choose anything when they're born into this world but unfortunately society tries to choose things for them yeah Uh, and so equity is in my opinion being able to offer those opportunities and access to all people regardless and allowing them to make the choices after it's laid out on the table there it is there it is 
Um, I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing, Brandon. Where can, where can anybody that's listening right now, a teacher or a, a principal that wants to be involved in this education advocacy, where can they go to find you uh, to learn more about how to advocate for teachers? Um, I'm not going to say that I am the, the most, uh, <laughs> I have the most expertise, but, uh, if people want to follow me on Twitter, one thing Hope Street Group, uh, had us do was create a Twitter and it's been amazing how many, uh, equity advocates that you can just connect to on there. So, uh, okay. my Twitter is at Morrison thinks. So that's at M O R R I S O N T H I N K S. Um, that's my Twitter, um, I'm not the biggest tweeter, but I will retweet something good real quick. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn, Brandon L. Morrison. Um, but I would say, don't start with me. I would say just, I would say look, in, look inside and see what you really want um, to make that effect because I think that's what really has gotten me um, what little distance I've traveled now, but what is pushing me and propelling me to keep going. Um, and that's because I know from my experiences, um, working with my students, what needs to be done. And if, and I'm kind of tired of waiting on other people to do it, if you get my drift. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say just, I would say even if a couple of teachers get together and they decide, you know what, we're going to write um, a letter to our legislator or we're going to write an op-ed in our school newspaper about what needs to change to education, those little things can pick mm. up momentum. Mm. And so I would say keep, keep those little things going and it'll snowball into something larger um, the more you reach out and connect with people with those like-minded uh, change agent ideas. Right on, right on. So basically just start where you are. All you, all you, can, all you need to do is uh, what you can do right now. Definitely, definitely. Good. Well, thank you so much, Brandon. Uh, thank you for taking the time out for and joining us today to share your wisdom and conversation about the classroom and advocacy for teachers and students. And also thank you for listening. If you're a teacher, a principal, an educator, district level, whatever the case is, and you like this episode, go follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Tune in. You can also follow myself, Trey Gamage, on LinkedIn and Facebook, Instagram as well. And we will see you next time on the Dash Podcast. Remember, if you are interested in services to support your classroom behavior in middle schools, visit TreyGamage.com for more information. Thank you once more for joining us, and we will see you next time. This is the Dash.